Welcome to Calming the Chaos Podcast, where we help you find peace in a chaotic world. I'm Tracy Canella, licensed mental health counselor, certified eating disorder specialist, and advanced clinical hypnotherapist. Calming the Chaos Podcast provides you with self-help resources for handling anxiety, stress, and overwhelm. It is not a substitute for counseling or psychotherapy. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe and share it with your friends. Thanks for tuning in. And now, let the chaos begin. And the chaos has begun. (laughs) Happy St. Patrick's Day. Am I a green nightmare or what? Here I am. I'm going to be talking about a very important subject that does have to do with green. And no, it's not money. It is about climate and our world. If you are interested in climate change and you want to learn a little bit more about it, we are going to talk with Lee Schneider today. And he has written several books about how life might look in the future. And he is very passionate about climate change. And his books do have climate disasters in them as well. He's done some research. He's also had a really interesting background in the screenplay and in film and TV. And so he's just an all around cool guy. I'm gonna bring Lee up and he could probably do his intro better than I can. Welcome Lee to Calming the Chaos. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's good to see you. And I really am looking forward to this talk today because, um, you know, first off, I'm really interested in hearing about your past uh, with screenplays and film, TV work, and then how you ended up shifting into the work that you're you're doing now. So um, go ahead and add on to my intro about yourself, uh, if you will. Tell us some more about yourself, Lee. Sure. Well, I actually started in fiction writing, but at the you know when I was nineteen, there was no I thought I was going to be the world's greatest novelist, and maybe I am, but at the time, no one would pay me to do that. So I did write some early novellas and and fiction works, but I soon realized that you know i was I got married, I had a family, that was not going to pay the bills, and it was a really hard way to every day get up and write, you know, pull out of your mind and write fictional stuff. Uh, I had an opportunity to work um, as a a writer for Good Morning America. I was living in New York and I lived down the street and I was an easy guy to call when they, when someone got sick, I could sub easily. I could just get on the subway and, and pop into the office. So I became, uh, I started writing for those Let's call them characters because I was writing plays at the time and writing fiction. And yet when you write for an on-camera personality, it's a character, right? You have to meet that person's voice. So that worked and I did that for a while uh, and did all kinds of other things. You know, when you're a young married fellow with a, you know, with a baby on the way, I wrote cartoons, I wrote short form documentaries, I uh, wrote for A&E before it was A&E. I, you know, basically would, I wrote a ski movie. I know nothing about skiing and I got hired to write a movie about skiing and of course got fired. That was the only time I'd actually been fired because I don't know anything about skiing, but I somehow talked them into writing the movie. Uh, 
I got so it started to. There's a lot of salesmanship in the, that kind of writing, uh, and mm -hmm. I was able to. I saw the opportunity of California, and I started to travel to California just to pitch things, you know, to see if I could get jobs in movies and television. And I would tell people that um, uh, they would see my area code, which at the time was a 718 in Brooklyn. And there's an 818 out here in California. In, uh, California. And they would say, where's the 718 area code? And I'd say, well, that's the new Brooklyn area code. And they say, where's New Brooklyn? You know, and, I, <laughs> and, and the conversation would come around to, can you be here tomorrow for a meeting? I say, sure. And I would literally like book the tickets. You could do that in those days, get on a flight and go and show up the next day for meetings. So I got some TV work and I got some movie work and that was fun and great. And I, you know, it's a, there's a expression, um, you can make a killing in the theater, but you can't make a living. And I would make enough on one TV show to buy a new car. And then after a while it would be, whoa, well, where's the next TV show coming from? Or, you know, can I close another deal? And I did face that kind of blank screen again, where it was, you know, it's really hard to pull things out of your head every day. And now you have the added pressure of, well, I have a little child now at the time one, and we have rent to pay and, you know, we're, we've, we'd moved to California. This is all kind of new. It's fun and crazy and interesting, but it's new. And I, I just um, started to literally go door to door, knocking on the doors of radio stations and television stations. Cause I didn't know anybody here really. And I would literally show up with a resume in hand and say, are you looking for writer producers? And they would of course say, go away. Uh, <laughs> but eventually someone at, E Entertainment Television said, oh. I'll give you a shot. Why don't you come in and try? So I came in. I thought it was a joke because the at that time the offices were over a lumber yard and I was it was a very strange part of Hollywood. And I was thinking, you know, someone's playing a joke on me. <laughs> and they said, Well, here's a here's a videotape and here's a little floppy disk and you know, put them together to make a story. So I went over to the little computer they gave me. It was a little Apple. Mac computer, first time I'd ever seen a Mac. And yeah, and I just wrote a story and I gave it to them. They said, okay, write another. And then I did that like three, four, five times. And then by the end of the day, they said, you know, I think we should hire you <laughs> because you've actually written more than anybody else here today. So I got that reputation of that sort of deadline writer, you know, just kind of turning stuff around. Uh, and so I wrote for local news and would write you know, you go in, you write as many stories as you can. It would be very competitive. Can you write 20 stories in a night? Woo, woo. You know, it's like really go for it kind of stuff. A lot of high stress, crazy people. And that became writing for uh, eventually um, Fox News for a while before it became the Fox News that it is now. And e -Enter and um, sorry, and Dateline NBC to write news magazine stuff. And from there, I went into documentaries for a while. And all the all this time, I'm, you know, making money and starting production companies and pitching projects until roughly 2009, I had that kind of blank screen feeling again. And I was working on a television show for um, History Channel. It was called Breaking Point. And I said, you know, Breaking Point, that's a really good title. If I'm going to leave television, 
this would be a great one to go out on. So I did. I, I had podcasting gear and because I had been producing television stuff. So I had microphones and I had stuff. And I just decided to try podcasting. So I literally stopped TV. I haven't gone back yet and got into podcasting uh, for clients and being a podcast audio producer. But the writing bug came back and eventually started writing short stories. It's a sort of thing, it's a coping mechanism in some ways, you know, writing to stay sane. But I started writing short stories. I started writing short radio plays and I played around with novels for a while also uh, and wrote a couple of them that I thought were pretty good, but not good enough. You know, they would, it would go out to agents, wouldn't get picked up. Uh, and I, at that time, I didn't know that much about self-publishing, so I didn't do it. I kind of gave up on them. Mm. They're still in the closet and still in the drawer, you know, that kind of classic novel in the drawer. But then this one was different, this novel Surrender, which, you know, I hate surrendering. So I gave it the title of something that I hate on purpose to kind of challenge myself. I hate giving up, but I, but I hate the, you know, what I've learned is it's very powerful to surrender to something in a good mm -hmm. way, uh, hence the title of the book. So this one caught on it for reasons we'll probably talk about in a minute, but this one became, you know, when you write a novel, it's like running a marathon. You got to go keep going and keep going. And people are handing you little cups of water and, you know, you, you, you do, you have to find a way to keep going and you have to really care about what you're working on or else it's not worth the marathon. You know, you may as well just walk the rest of it. So mm. with this book, which took a couple of years to write and I'm into writing the sequel now, uh, I found that kind of inner fire, that kind of motor that makes you want to keep on keeping on mm -hmm. with the book so that's kind of the it's kind of a long monologue but that's the capsule summary monologue of course you'd say monologue being in show business formally right right, <laughs> right. yeah i have a, just about a million questions for you because that was great uh one of the things is because you know we're all about chaos here on this uh, channel on this podcast and it really sounds like those years you, you described when you were uh, married, a young adult, you had a baby on the way, and you were having going having to go pitch yourself. And right. uh, so, you must have pitched yourself enough, but it must have been very chaotic, not knowing where your next meal was coming from, next paycheck was coming from. I'm just wondering how, as a young man back then, did you? How did you calm your chaos? Well, not well, you know, to to begin with. Uh, the marriage at that time failed. I'm no longer married to that person, uh, in part because it was, you know, it's a really hard way to make a go. And you really need the support of a partner if you're going to have a partner. Uh, I found that the things, the coping strategies that I picked then were okay, but not great. I, I've always been an avid runner. Uh, mm -hmm. I've always um, gardened, you know, and these are things that help kind of dial back when you're running. It, it, if you're trying to think of the next screenplay character, you're probably going to trip over something. I've done this and it's not good. You know, you have to concentrate on what you're doing. But there is a turning point in this where uh, way back when I was working in Burbank uh, for NBC, I had an hour commute every day, no matter what I did. I tried all these different routes in all these different ways. I tried the freeway, surface streets. It always took an hour. 
up and back. So it meant leaving early in the morning and coming home too late at night. And it was a super stressful job. I was doing investigations. Um, you know, my phone was tapped. Uh, when you do investigations, you know, you you go after people and people come after you. You know, it's it's a very uh, out there, rough, emotional position. So one day I was driving home and I saw this yoga studio. I'd never done yoga. I don't know anything about, I didn't know anything about yoga then. And I said, you know, I think I have to do that. I think I have to try that. It was just one of those like bolt from the blue moments. So I pulled, literally pulled over the car, uh, said, I'm going to be late. And I went in there and I took a yoga class. Uh, and it became this, well, wait a minute, this is okay. Like if I did this every day, if I did meditation every day, it's going to be this moment where I could open up will turn off the high uh, high revolution processor of the mind and just let some of the other stuff float up good and bad and i've ever since i've pretty much done yoga every day and i meditate pretty much every day and that is really the thing that has kept me in not only being a creative person but now i'm married kept me married kept me a father kept me from going off the road, you know, all the, <laughs> all those uh, bad things. I'd say yoga and meditation have really helped me a lot. Yeah. And it's definitely a good preventative measure for, you want to have your resources built up so that when chaotic, chaotic moments come up that you're able to handle them more effectively and use skills, you're much more apt to be able to do that if you have some sort of preventative measure. I think physical activity is one of those things, but for you, it sounds like you just switched to uh, being uh, like all Zen and stuff. Right? <laughs> it helps. Well, I still run, you know, I play tennis, I run the getting out in nature, getting out in the world really helps, especially when even as a producer, I'm in my head a lot, I'm on machines a lot, you know, so this, these counterbalances do make a big difference. And it's very easy for me to kind of push through, you know, and go for it. And then the next day I don't feel so well, or I'm yelling at somebody or, I'm, you know, something bad happens. And I realize, you know, it's actually pretty smart to try to wind myself down at the end of the day by 5.30, if I can do it somehow, wow. you know, like make a... And I, I have my computer goes to dark mode uh, at five and I have a little blip thing that comes up that says, remember to calm down and remember to slow down because I love to work and I would just keep going. And it's great, you know, I mean, I'm supposed to be writing 600 words a day uh, on the new novel and I write easily 1200 a day or 1700 a day because I like doing it. I have to stop myself from doing the work, but stopping is a valuable skill mm -hmm. uh, I've learned. It's the inverse of, well, I'm not motivated or I don't know what to do. And I'm a definite procrastinator and slow starter, but once I get going, I'm very difficult to stop. So all these strategies really help balance. It's a balance thing. Mm -hmm. Wow, you know, I, I, I'm guilty of that as well. I seem to not want to stop. And I don't know if it's just my curious mind that wants to keep going, but I like your strategy of shutting down at 530. But that would mean for me, I'd come through the door and I'd have to just 
completely shut down because that's about the time I come through the door after the, after my work day is over. But, yeah. but I get your point there. All those kind of tools and tips work uh, as, as preventative and triage methods of calming chaos. I do want to ask you about that day, the day that you went to E and you asked, and you were asked to come up with these ideas on the fly and you were able to do, what'd you say, six of them on a floppy yeah, disk? A lot, yeah. I mean, probably about six. How did you handle that? I, I, for me, I was thinking, I was being in your story, I was thinking my mind would just be going either blank or everywhere at once. How did you manage to do that? How did you manage to get through it? I think that well, I have a certain level of confidence in my creative and writing skills that is very hard to shake. You know, w when pitching, you're going to get rejected a lot. You know, you write a whole novel, it gets rejected. You send it to 30 agents, it gets rejected. So there's a lot of reason to go, huh, forget it. You know, I'll go do something else. But I do have a lot of confidence in just the ability to write something and express. And I think I'm in a positive way, challenged by, okay, this is going to be hard. This, a lot of the documentaries I did for History Channel and other networks were science documentaries, architecture documentaries, engineering documentaries, and they often involved getting people to explain complicated things. And I became the guy who could take this complicated thing and explain it. So I, was grateful for that. And it came, it wasn't that hard, you know, I don't mean to say it's all easy, but it wasn't like, oh, this is going to be really, I, uh, you know, I didn't have an, that kind of emotional response. Yeah. I had the response of this is going to be challenging. And, uh, but on my own terms, I'm not going to fail. I could fail on their terms. You know, I've been fired twice. The ski movie, uh, where I didn't know anything about skiing and I talked my way into writing a movie about skiing. And one day after I left E, I went back to work uh, at E later and th they had something and still do, I think called the Style Network. And I was hired as a writer producer for the Style Network. And they decided that I had no style uh, one day. And I came to work in a $250 Japanese Kenzo designer shirt happened to be insect green. And my mother gave it to me. And I thought, this is fantastic. You know, I am totally styling now. <laughs> and that's the day I was fired from the style wearing a $250 Kenzo shirt. And, and oh, um, my goodness. then I had to give that shirt away. I could never wear it again because, you know. So, you know, things happen, but I don't think that that had a negative impact on my writing ability is like, mm -hmm. these people are crazy. I mean, okay, maybe I don't have any style, but I could still write a story. You know, I could still look at a videotape and still make something up that would be, you know, and fact check it and make it work. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's this kind of, um, I'm a firstborn child, you know, a family of three. And it's kind of this firstborn, like I got this, feeling, which definitely has taken a few hits. You know, it's not like mm -hmm. it's all perfect, but there is that kind of, you know, I'm going to work this out. This is going to be hard. You know, mm -hmm. like writing itself is often you start in the morning and if I have a good outline or a good idea of what I'm doing and I may depart from it, great. But sometimes it's like, you know, this is sucks or this doesn't work. And 
you know, that then I'll usually switch modes. I'll take out a, a notebook and a pen and I'll write, I don't know what to write today, you know, a hundred times, in t <laughs> not a hundred times, but I'll, you know, I'll write by hand, you know, what if the character did this? What if, the, you know, you have to just fool yourself in a way uh, or put your book into a different font and read it as though someone else were reading it. You know, there are lots of little tricks like that. Well, so what you're saying in a nutshell is it takes a certain amount of confidence in your own skill, which is probably why my mind started to panic at the thought of doing that because I don't have that sort of skill set. So you have a certain amount of confidence in your own skill set. You are resilient because apparently you'd, you've been rejected quite a few times knocking on those doors. And so that develops quite a bit of resiliency uh, in the long run. And then you have positive self-talk because you're you're, you're telling right. yourself this is going to be really super difficult. You can get through it, and uh, that that I think is golden right there for any of you who are listening and who are out there. I think I was thinking as you were talking. I thought, yeah, if they put me in a room and told me sing sing a couple of songs, I could be <laughs> able to do that, and I yeah. would know that I could do it well. I could do it. I could do it all day. And I would have the confidence and I probably, I don't know what, I would probably get hired doing something. I don't know, maybe voiceover acting or something. I have very much confidence in my voice. And so, yeah, okay, I get it now. I get yeah. why you didn't completely freak out on that day. Right. And there's a lot, you know, when you write plays and direct plays, the actors come up to you and they say, you've written this ca character, Mary. Now, what was she like as a child? Like the first time she was disappointed or something like that. And then I would say, you know, in my mind, I have no idea. Like I didn't really think about the character that deeply, but I, and I got used to just saying to the actor, you know, I don't know, but let's improvise. Let's work it out together. Why don't you give me some ideas and I'll give you some ideas and we'll write it into the script uh, because it's, you know, as the as a fiction author, you're assumed that you know everything about everything about the everything that's in the book and all the people. But, you know, Don DeLillo, a novelist, has famously said that he forgets, he claims to forget every book that he's written and forget how he did it and what it's about. And I can empathize with that because you get into this world and the actor's asking you the question and sometimes you know the answer and sometimes you don't. And I think that ability to improvise, like, you know, if someone said to you, improvise a song in the style of something, you'd go, well, okay, I can do that. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a certain amount of skill set level something that you that gives you the boost to say, sure, I'll give it a try. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I am a songwriter too. So if somebody were asked me to go into a room and write a song, I can do it. I, I can do it within a, a, well, I can do, I can write and produce and um, video a, a song in, in a, in a day. Um, yeah, and great. it's yeah. really super cool to have your talent. So what you need to do, people out there, is recognize what your talents, strengths, and gifts are and go out there and just do your good stuff, which is really pretty much my message on this channel anyway. So mm -hmm. rock mm -hmm. on, 
everybody. <laughs> and happy St. Patrick's Day, by the way. I want to know what you think of this picture. Does it look at all like your shirt that you wore on that day? Was it this kind of green? <laughs> you, you know, uh, a little bit more acid green, but <laughs> kind of like that. <laughs> Not with the leprechauns on it or the no, you no know, leprechauns pats? In Georgia. No. No, no. Well, I'm choosing to say that you were fired that day because of the shirt and not because of your skill. But hey, you know, that's that's Could just be. me, right? I tend to keep it on the optimistic side. Right. Well, I wanted, since we are on the topic of green and I am a green nightmare today, are you wearing any green on the St. Patrick's Day? Unfortunately not. I took a really, I brought out a shirt and I showed mm. it to my wife and child. And I said, look, there are some tiny green stripes in this shirt and I they argued with me they said no no that's brown it's got a it's brown and I said it's green it's green I have to and no and I looked close and it probably was a little bit more brown than green so I I failed at the green test because I just couldn't really find anything I have a green like Patagonia jacket but I'd be like sweating <laughs> if I wore that <laughs> There's a little wow. green. This book is called One Green Thing. So there's a little green uh, there. In the okay. Uh, you've got green on your screen. I was going to say, if you're not wearing the green, I am going to pinch you through the screen. Uh -huh. And this is, uh, I guess, my my little joke of the day or whatever it is. But uh, yeah. Um, wow. And this is the way I pinch people through the screen. Are you ready? I hope so. There, uh, officially right. consider yourself pinched through the screen. Okay. Although technically you are wearing green on your screen because of that book in the background. So right. yes, uh, yeah. Well, so speaking of green, uh, uh, what got you interested in climate change and climate and climate related things? Tell me how you made that transition. Sure, well, I really started thinking about in an abstract way, in a way that I couldn't action really about what kind of world I was leaving for my children. I have three children now, and the youngest who's 10 who lives with us is quite concerned and interested in what his world is gonna be like. And he feels probably a sense of, out of being out of control or a loss of control or what can he do? Uh, and I empathize with that because he's, just he's going to turn 11 soon, but he's just a little kid, you know, and these problems are big. These are huge problems. So I was writing Surrender, but not really, it wasn't really catching yet, but it was in draft. And during that period, we had a lot of fires a couple of years ago here in California and North. And the smoke from the fires came into our neighborhood. We live in Southern California yeah. and suddenly we couldn't go outside and we had to close all the windows and we had to, we have air purifiers, but we had to turn them on. And I, it suddenly struck me that, you know, we're living in this right now. Like what if you couldn't go outside? And I remembered when I worked in Burbank with NBC, you know, the air pollution back then was pretty bad. And there were times when you had alerts and you couldn't go outside. Mm -hmm. So it was, well, wait a minute, this is really happening. You know, this is here now. And it made me think, so I started to research, you know, I started to research what are the climate models? What's it going to look like here in California? You know, will we be able to live here? Uh, will people be able to have water or raise crops or, you know, right now, California is a huge farming state. What's going to happen, you know, in 10, 20 years? Do I want to buy a house here? Is it crazy? 
I mean, it's already crazy because it's an earthquake zone, but <laughs> right. would, it, would you just not be able to go outside? And that really started the ball rolling, you know, all the starting to do the research. And I, I did a podcast as a host and producer called The Future of Food. And it was most, I did three seasons of that. And mostly the first season was about technical solutions to food problems. Like, let's get this cool tracking app or let's find a way to farm fish or maybe people would eat more seaweed. And some of those were valid and some were just technical gimmicks. Uh, in the second season of Future of Food, we did regenerative farming and farming practices and trying to understand the earth as a resource that we have to take care of and who is doing that, because that all connects to where your food comes from. And the third season of that I did on how restaurants are surviving during the pandemic which became a whole supply chain argument. And, you know, where's our food coming from? And we take so much for granted uh, about things that operate smoothly. You know, mm -hmm. like we can just go, what happens when the shelves are bare and you go to the markets, which happened plenty of times and during the pandemic, there was just, no, you couldn't buy the food you wanted, for example, mm -hmm. or you couldn't go out to get it, or you couldn't go in the store to get it. And all of those things accrued into a, OMG moment of, now, wait a minute, this, this is not the future future. This is the now. It is. That is behaving like we were told the future would be. Mm -hmm. But the key to all science fiction is it's not about the future at all. It's about a version of the present that just hasn't happened yet. And we are, you read, I read science fiction to see what now is like in a way, another version of now. So that all connected for me and made me want to write the book and made me want to continue with the kind of podcasting and other projects that I'm doing to think about. Mm -hmm. We have this situation where, you know, we're not being such good neighbors to other species, where we're being pretty dominant. It's our nature as humans. And there's a wonderful book called Stop Trying to Save the Planet, which I read recently. And uh, Jenny Price is the author of that. And she makes the very wonderful point that a lot of our world, a lot of our economy is optimized to make a few people wealthy and to provide goods and services cheap and fast. But that's not really a great system for, of course, taking care of everybody but taking care of this wonderful planet that we live on. It's a system for making goods cheap and fast, which works in, you know, it's a great wealth generator for not everyone, but a few. And we have fixed a lot of problems, but we, in the process, broken a lot of things. Mm. Uh, and so books like uh, that and One Green Thing, this other green book, are books that I read that really started me thinking about, well, what can you do? Yeah. But if anything. Mm -hmm. I do remember because my family is in Northern California and I remember those fires vividly and we were affected a little bit by the Canadian fires mm. a couple of years ago because mm -hmm. we're in Washington state. And I was thinking that same thing. It would look like it was a foggy day during the daytime. Right. And it was what, 90 degrees, <laughs> but it was really super, I mean, hazy. And I also remember in the 70s when I was growing up, there were days where we couldn't do PE or we couldn't go out to play because of the smog. 
And I also remember as a young adult living in Oregon, as I was going down I-5 to visit my family, there was, uh, there was, this, there was this point in the freeway where you see the cloud that you were going to go into yeah. and it was the haze and it was the smog. And I was, it was almost like I knew that the fresh air would be ending soon. And I would be going down into the, the part of California that really uh, was very smoggy. And that's not even Southern California. I was going to Northern California. Right. I was going to the Bay area. Right. Yeah. <sighs> I mean, when I worked in Burbank, you could, you know, there would be alerts posted and uh, you could go outside and look at a brown sky, literally like yeah. that sky is not blue. Mm -hmm. And I had, I never had allergies, you know, uh, sneezy kind of allergies in my life. They popped up when I was in Burbank and they haven't really gone away since, although they're reduced. Mm -hmm. Cause that really was a, you know, you, you couldn't be outside really. You could, you had to mm -hmm. be careful. So all those things, it's very, you know, it, it makes it very literal and concrete. All these abstract ideas become, wow, you know, this is now. Well, even back in the 70s, I'm just even now just remembering 1975, uh, 10 years old. Um, in the swimming pool, we everybody has pools in California, right? We had this mm -hmm. stand-up above-ground pool. We were playing in it. We loved to play. And I remember this one time I got out and I um, I noticed that my lungs hurt. And I told my mom, I said, mm -hmm. "Mommy, my lungs hurt." And she said, "Oh, you've just got smog in your lungs," and like mm -hmm. it was no big deal. Um, but it, but uh, it, I, I think it probably helped to know that there was an explanation for it that I wasn't going to die, but it really right. hurt my little lungs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That can be so, scary. Yeah. So the, in, that was back in the seventies. So uh, when we talk about climate change, are you referring to because of some of these uh, natural disasters, fires or tornadoes mm -hmm. that it is changing and affecting our planet? Cause I know some people think, well, there's no such thing as global warming. There's no such thing as climate change. Everything is just, everybody's just, making that up that's like a different like leftist sort of philosophy what do you have to say about that uh, about people who are kind of a, a little bit more on that i really don't believe that there is anything wrong with the planet it's just, it's just cycling through something so they're doubters yeah it's very hard if people have a strong belief there's practically no fact that you could offer that would change that belief if one day a person of that belief goes out and can't breathe uh, because of smog or, or the sky is brown, that may be a belief changer because it really gets you, gets you where you live, literally. But there is a lot of data now. There, the scientists are no longer in doubt about what's happening. The planet is getting warmer. And what that means is the polar I, the ice on the poles is melting. And that means that water levels are rising. And before we tune out and go, oh, complex, too much, it's good to think about, this is a whole system we're talking about here. There's a whole planetary system. So if water even rises an inch or two or a foot, we're gonna see parts of our coastal cities erased or we won't be able to go there anymore. There are projections I've seen that put big pieces of what is now say Queens, which is already built on a marsh in New York, underwater. Like there, you won't be able to go there. And there are projections I've seen that show, you know, you think Mississippi's hot in the summer now, or you think Texas is hot now in the summer. 
you're going to see that band of red. You know, if you look at, if you're visualizing a map, and that band of red of hot is getting higher and higher, and you're going to be able to farm in northern New York <laughs> and in Michigan. Uh, and when we have droughts here in California, it's pretty serious stuff. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, there literally there are no say there's no vegetables in the markets. You know, or yeah. you you go on a hike and it's dust. You're just hiking in dust. There's no water at all. And people say might say, well, it just rained a lot in California. Isn't the drought over? And yeah, it's great that it's rained so much. Of course, you know, houses fall off the hills and things flood. But the erratic nature of that is also a problem. Like we, there are projections I've seen where you look at a place like uh, a country like Thailand, Bangkok, where the water is so high that they've literally learned how to build homes on stilts and make them above the water. And we may be doing that in places, in California, for example, and maybe up north too, because the erratic nature, we may get monsoon-like weather for a while and then terrible drought for a while. And people may already have, in some places, people are already starting to need to move uh, in the global south where in places in India and places like that where seem very far away, but it's all the same planet. And when people can't live in their home country anymore and they have to leave because there's no water, well, those people may come to places where we live now. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, you don't, it's hard to put these things together in a way. It's like, well, why are there immigrants? Why, what are they running from? Why are they coming from their country? Well, it could be political. It could be climate. We may mm -hmm. be seeing more people who have come to our country or come to Europe or come to more northern places because of the, there's no water in their country mm -hmm. or little water or there's a terrible drought and they can't grow food. Mm -hmm. uh, and that all seems, as I keep saying, like too big, too complicated, too global, but it is. It's, mm. there's, there's a huge connectedness, which we haven't, as a species, we haven't really appreciated it enough. We just kind of build stuff and make roads and make cars and we do our thing and we, we dominate and we're good at that and we generate wealth and we're good at that, but it may be coming back to us in a way that we just haven't considered enough. Yeah. Yeah, I was, uh, there was a really big drought, uh, I believe, again, it was in the 70s, and we did learn to um, not flush our toilets. We mm -hmm. learned to, um, on, on alternative days, we could uh, either water our plants, but we learned how to take Navy showers. Right. So, you know, and, and so you learn those things when you're growing up in, in California, especially. Uh, and, uh, you know, some people would say like, yeah, well, California is going to eventually separate from the from the United States anyway, and just like float away into the Pacific someplace. And that's that's been a rumor for as long as I've been alive, right. and probably longer. But uh, but still, uh, you know, it's uh, it's really super uh, sobering to hear you talk about 
the warming of the places and then people having to leave their homes and their home places to come live to other places and uh, having so many people that I know and love in California. Uh, I want to know what it is that you think that we should be doing then. I, I, so we're trying to increase some awareness here without being too radical. Yeah. But I, I, I do, and that's what we've been doing so far. Um, but uh, I do want to know if you have some practical things that we uh, as viewers can, can do to help preserve, like you say, this precious planet that we all live on. Yeah. Well, look, it's certainly overwhelming. I mean, there's a big list of things when you start looking at what could be. But I think that a very simple way to start, and the book One Green Thing is very good at this, is it helps you see what kind of type you are. It, it's got quizzes and tests and personality things. And you start, it starts you thinking about, well, if I like hiking, am I kind of a nature person? Or if I like sharing ideas, am I kind of a share idea person? Uh, am I, or am I more philosophical or am I more philanthropic? Who am I? And it kind of does a fun way of finding that personality type. So you could do kind of be more you, be who you are in a way that would help this situation. For me, a, a big thing for me is appreciating nature. You know, I'm a pretty tech guy. I, I do this a lot. I write on computers. I write on phones. I have iPads. I have Kobos. I, you know, I like gadgets. I like tech. I've worked in edit suites, so, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it has made me take the green world, the, the outside world for granted. And I realized how for my mental health, for everything really, just to go for a walk, just to take a break from all the intense things that we do all day and just go outside and take a walk if you're lucky enough to have some green and some birds, you know, that it, you probably read the research that if you actually hear and see birds, it actually improves your mood. You know, it mm -hmm. actually helps. And just that, I think, not even going on a major hike. It, I'm not talking about like an eight mile hike or 10 mile hike or something. I'm talking about just appreciating what's out there. Yeah. I can breathe this air. Mm -hmm. I can see a blue sky. I can hear birds. That alone, not only does it elevate your mood, but that's a baseline appreciation of what we have. And then when the opportunity comes around to do something, uh, maybe it's as simple as recycling something, or maybe it's as simple as not trying to burn as much fossil fuel or burn anything, really. Mm -hmm. uh, you might have a choice to make there. You might say, you know, this this is going to matter if I do this one little thing. That's the mm -hmm. brilliant title of the book, One Green Thing. It's just... It's just one green thing. You're not trying to, you know, remake the whole world in a day. And this is, you know, th this is the um, overwhelm of my young 10-year-old son. Like, what? he's a kid. What can he do? He, he sees the problems. He's smart. He's He knows that fossil fuels are an issue. He knows that the way we burn things and create power is an issue. But what's he going to do? So, mm -hmm. but there is one thing you can do to kind of open your mind, at least to the other the rest of the process the one green thing and it just so happens that it is saint patrick's day i'm dressed in green <laughs> you are not you've officially been pinched 
And uh, yeah, so we can all do one, one little thing. Um, yeah, because uh, I, you know, the, the radical ideas uh, right or left um, th th they're hard, right? It's, it's very hard for people to get used to like radical change, but if you put it in a way to where it's like, can we just do one thing and that can be enough. And I yep. do feed the birds. I feed the birds ah, nice. mostly for my cat's entertainment because they like looking at the birds through the, gla the glass. Yeah. Uh, but um, I see them too. And uh, the stellar jays are just leaving right now. And as far as birds, I see buffalo heads and ducks outside my office window. So, and I didn't know that they were doing uh, me good. So I'm glad that I was doing better than I thought I was, if you, that makes sense <laughs> at all. So, yeah, yeah. So you said that you had a, a bunch of tech things and you said you had a woo what? What did you say you had? A Kobo. 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 It's a, I sound, it sounds like a disease. Oh, yeah, it, I have yeah a well, no, it's not. Where, it's where a, is it located? It's a, uh, Kobo is a competitor to Amazon, and it's a, a different kind of e-reader that uses e-ink. So I read e-books on it, and you can scribble oh. on it and make notes and things like awesome. that. Awesome. Well, speaking of books, I do want to promote your book. I have a picture of it right here, and there it's called are. Surrender. So an uh, interesting picture want to explain that looks fun <laughs> well i had a i brought in a great designer paul palmer edwards and i i've designed all my other book covers kind of by myself you know just as a you know get out some photoshop and canva but uh he read the book and we talked about things and he did gosh so many test designs and there this cleverly when you read the book you'll see this collects some of the themes of the book but without spoilers uh there's there's a city that's kind of under domes there's as we're looking at the picture now there's an eye and there's kind of like a ai artificial intelligence eye watching over people and uh people have given me very good feedback about this cover so i'm i really i'm grateful for that and i i like that it's a bit mysterious, but I hope it sparks some curiosity. Yeah, I see the, uh, like it's kind of a sunset you see, uh, scene over water and it's kind of hazy and this eye in the middle of that in the city and all that technology that you were just talking about as well as, um, as AI, right? Because yeah. um, I, I guess at the, at the end of the day, we got to figure out what really matters to us in our lives and our, our own values. And if we value uh, human life and our own lives, the quality of our lives and going outside, uh, then there's something that you can do. There's something that everybody uh, can do to calm that, uh, that climate chaos that we, we have experienced. Yeah. So I want to share your website with, uh, with uh, our audience here and let's go ahead and take a look at it because it I think it is <laughs> super cool <laughs> and of course you can see that uh, this man is in film or did you do this or did somebody else do no, it for you someone else did it for me oh I, wish I, could do I thought it was you I wish I could make something like that I it's very mesmerizing I, I could just stare at it forever it kind of almost looks like an octopus but then it looks like an eye and um, yeah, it's pretty neat. Oh, now it looks mm. like a duck. Okay, well, um, so Future <laughs> X, and there is the book, uh, Surrender, mm -hmm. here. And um, you want to uh, tell us how you got the name Future X here? Well, 
Yeah, we, you know, I started it with a fellow named Ever Gonzalez, and we were making uh, events and podcasts and got, we're getting into publishing. And we thought the future is unknown, hence the X. And uh, our copyright lawyer said, you know, there's other things called future X. Would you consider calling it future Y? And I said, well, <laughs> it's kind of an interesting idea, but it doesn't really have the same ring. So future X is the unknown future. Oh my gosh, future. I was thinking future W-H-Y, like why future? And I'm like, no, that's no, kind no. of self-destructive right there. <laughs> yeah. Future Y, no, future X is definitely cooler. And uh, <laughs> then, uh, so here, if you click on the books tab, you can see uh, this is the surrender book and it's available on all sorts of different areas, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, bookshop.org, IndieBound, and the Kobo ebook. It's on Kobo. Kobo it, is not a disease, it's an it's ebook. Book. And I just got it, uh, I'll, have, I'll change these buttons later because I just also got it published on Apple, Apple Books. Ooh. Ah, nice. There's a description of what it is, is that the um, the splintered into t into independent domains, which is kind of going on politically yeah. right now. Anyway, we're really right. super divided. And uh, but this is a concept that uh, is futuristic, but also is happening right now. Exactly. Yeah, I was trying to think not too far out. Like this takes place in 2050 uh, mm -hmm. and. I was really trying to find a way to reflect in a slightly exaggerated way where we are right now. Mm -hmm. And all the all the tech in here, with the exception of a few things, all the political stuff is something you, I didn't want to write anything that someone would go, wow, that's crazy. You know, I, mm -hmm. it's kind of like, yeah, I could see, you know, a few clicks down the road, we could be there. Uh, right. And we... And a lot of what happens to the people in this book is they're finding ways of coping with this, of doing the future. And even though it may look to us, you may be looking at it and saying, you know, that's a really weird way to live. But mm -hmm. we were going out and putting on masks pretty recently, you know, and, yeah. and the people in this book have to wear masks. And we wear a lot more sunscreen now than we did in the 70s. And the people in this book need to wear protective clothing. Uh, but I don't yeah. see that as being that far off. You know, we probably would. I mean, there already is protective clothing that you can buy, but you in this book, people wear it all the time outside. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, and not long ago, we were actually wearing masks. And then in this book, it centers around one character, but there's lots of different characters in it. Is that what I understand from reading the blurb? Yeah. Okay. There's a yeah. uh, a woman, the primary character is an entrepreneur named Cat Keeper whose company kind of implodes around her and she gets forced out of her own company and her husband dies uh, uh, suddenly. And so she's, in, she's a bit adrift at the beginning of the novel and she hires an AI savant, a super smart AI dude to create, recreate her conscious, the consciousness of her husband is kind of a super chatbot, but a bit more than that. And wow. their relationship builds. I, it's an example of the weird wonderfulness of writing. I had no idea that that relationship was going to be so important. Uh, wow. In the book. 
I knew that I wanted this person. I knew I wanted AI. I knew I wanted a chatbot-esque kind of character, but I had no idea that that was going to become a big relationship. And I had to go with it because I saw that it was good. And other people, my early, you know, when you write a novel, you have early readers. You have people mm -hmm. who read the super early stuff and say, that doesn't make sense. Or you mixed up those dates. Or how come you leave that story behind? That's a good story. So I realized that that was something that I needed to work on in this. Nice. Yeah, I'm totally going to pick it up and, and read it. Um, and so if you want to visit Lee's website, it is uh, FutureX Studio. And it is just HTTPX FutureX.Studio for those who are, of you who are not on YouTube and are listening to it. Mm -hmm. And it's also in the show, show notes. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, from that website, FutureX uh, dot studio backslash books. You can go and see the books. And then you can follow Lee on Instagram. And he's under Instagram as DocuGuy because apparently there are some nefarious characters named Lee Schneider out there, some of whom have been arrested. Is that right? <laughs> that is true. When I Googled <laughs> myself, I realized when I was setting up Instagram and for that matter, Twitter ages ago. I realized, you know, that would, I don't, I'm not going to be able to use that name, my own name. <laughs> <laughs> that would be so freaky just to find out that your name is like, oh my gosh, there's somebody out there committing right. crimes in my name. Yeah, not Talk good. about not identity good. theft. Oh my goodness yeah. gracious. Wow. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah, so please check out Lee and his book. Uh, and the book is called Surrender, something he does not like to do, but has written about. <laughs> and uh, check out his uh, website. Uh, Lee, are there any parting words you'd like to say to our audience about chaos, about surrendering, about climate, about one green thing, about St. Patrick's Day, anything? Well, it's really, you know, I keep coming back to you, small things you do just to keep yourself sane or to solve big problems small things you do can solve big problems and they can certainly help you cope with the big problems. You know, if I had to give any advice to anybody, I'd probably say, try meditation and yoga, give it a try or try a walk, you know, try, try to walk. You know, we live in a very technical world, techie world. It's not going away. Uh, you could probably disappear in a remote cabin someplace, but Probably not. At this point, we're living like this. So what's the counterbalance? Mm -hmm. And yeah. the counterbalance for me is, you know, green stuff, nature and yoga. Mm -hmm. You know, I like I like doing yoga, too. And I like green <laughs> stuff. And uh, oh, you mean you, you don't mean Yoda? You meant yoga? <laughs> OK, right. yeah. Yeah. He's he's one green thing. I don't know if, if, if looking at Yoda is uh, going to be therapeutic, but it definitely does fit in with the uh, the wisdom and the uh, greenness <laughs> and the St. Saint Patrick's Day. So I choose to, to show Yoda on screen. Well, again, it was wonderful having you with us today on Calming the Chaos. Thank you so much, Lee, for all you do and your work and uh, for being such a great guest. And um, we you. will talk soon, I hope. All right. Thank take you. Care. This has been wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, take care. Thanks for listening to Calming the Chaos podcast. You can find all Calming the Chaos podcasts on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Music, Spotify, Amazon, and on YouTube. 
you can also go to www.calmingthechaospodcast.com for more information and to see all podcast episodes. Thanks so much for listening, and I look forward to sharing my next podcast episode with you. In the meantime, take care.